All right. Well, you guys, uh, if you would turn to Romans chapter 1. And, you know, I love the book of Romans. To me, it's one of the most important books in the Bible. In fact, if you were just starting to read your Bible, I would tell you, uh, you should probably start in the book of John, because that really reveals Jesus as God, as the Messiah. Uh, Then I'd say that you should go to the book of Acts, because that shows how he birthed the church, and... Uh, how he established a pattern for us to follow generation after generation in keeping the church moving forward. And then I would tell you to go to the book of Romans because to me it's the most, uh, uh, you know, the, the New Testament is written mostly by the same guy. And, and uh, he spoke some things to people when he would go to these towns and churches. He spoke some things to them in person and then he would write them letters later to kind of complete the teaching. And so that's why we see uh, teachings on some things in some books of uh, the New Testament, and then we see teachings on other things, and sometimes he teaches from a little bit different angle because, uh, you know, he would, he would speak to them like I'm speaking to you, parts of the gospel and parts of the revelation of Jesus, and then he would write others. But to me, the book of Romans is, 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 where, it is where, where you have the most of the gospel and the revelation of Jesus Christ in one letter from Paul. And it's pretty cool. It's a great book. Uh, And today, I just want to kind of give you a highlight, some high points of the first half of the book of Romans. And uh, I would encourage you to uh, take these high points and go home and read 1 through 7 for yourself through this lens that I'm going to present to you because uh, by no means are we going to be able to hit it all. I could probably do... Uh, three months <laughs> on this. And so uh, we're just going to hit on some big things. Uh, Paul's big idea in the first seven chapters, we're going to look a little bit about his teaching on uh, the law, which is the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and uh, you know God's law that he gave to, the, to Israel, and how it fits into our life today as New Testament born-again believers. And I also want to look a little bit at uh, what Paul has to say about grace, because grace is something that is often uh, misunderstood, I think, by a lot of people. And so anyway, uh, that's kind of the, the high level there. And uh, let's, let's pray real quick. Lord God, I, I just thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, I pray that, you were, that your Holy Spirit would just come and, and uh, minister to us right now, God. I, I thank you for open hearts, God, that are that are uh, good soil uh, to receive your word, Lord. I, I pray that you would help our minds to stay focused and sharp on you today, Lord, and, and, and to, to, to just receive what you have for us, God. Lord, I pray that, that you would help me to communicate well, Lord, and that, that God, that you would just uh, move powerfully during this time, God, and that it would be worth it for every single person here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Get a sip of water here. Give a shout out to Jeremy. He got me some water. Jeremy's an awesome guy. He does a lot for our church. Um, Anyhow, in Romans 1 through 7, Paul is really building a case for why Jesus became a man, lived a life, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again and then went up to heaven. He's, he builds a case as to why Jesus did that and how that plays into God's plan. And, uh, you know, he, he has to set 
some foundation work. And the first thing that he sets, the first uh, foundation stone that he sets is that man, people, are utterly guilty. We are very guilty. And let me show you what he says. Uh, In Romans 1, verse 18, it says, But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who push the truth away from themselves. For the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. From the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky and all that God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. The result was that their minds became dark and confused. Tell me me if this doesn't sound like... uh, the popular culture right here. Claiming to be wise, they became utter fools instead. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people or birds and and animals and snakes. So, uh, you know, he continues in chapter 1 for about about 10 more verses just kind of slamming the guilt of man. And uh, and then if you you turn over real quick to chapter 3, Uh, I'm going to read you one more passage where he just kind of reiterates this kind of foundational point uh, to get to his main point. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 9 says, Well then, are we Jews better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, people, whether Jews or Gentiles, and the Gentiles includes every single person in the world that's not a Jew, uh, so that's us, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is good, not even one. No one has real understanding. No one is seeking God. All have turned away from God and have gone wrong. All have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their speech is filled with lies. The poison of a deadly snake drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They are quick to commit murder. Wherever they go, destruction and misery follow them. They do not know what true peace is. They have no fear of God to restrain them. And so that's pretty heavy. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. There is none good. No, not one. You know, most, uh, most people, if you ask them, that if they think that they're a good person, they'll say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. But that's, that's, that's a, a relative to, to the, the standard of the world. And so what Paul was establishing here is he's saying, no, you're not a good person. You know, you all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's, there's nobody that's good. There's nobody that's seeking after God. And the reason that he does that is it's not to weigh us down and pile us up with guilt. The reason he does that is, is that he, he wants to bring us to a very awesome and glorious conclusion. And, and that, that awesome and, and glorious conclusion is this. It is that God is gloriously righteous in justifying the ungodly by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. That is what he built. He had to show us that we were guilty in order to, to show that God 
is, is, is acquitting us, calling us not guilty, even though we're guilty, for a reason that we're going to get to in just a second. But I want to ask you, how can God do this? If God is the good judge, if God is good, how can he take an unrighteous person and call them righteous? How can God take a guilty person and call them not guilty? You know, in, in, our, in our court system, if a judge, if all the evidence pointed against a man being guilty, and a judge uh, came and it was just so obvious, you know, and, and, and it was without a reason of doubt, and, and a jury convicted the man, and then the judge came and said, well, you know what, I don't think you're guilty, I'm going to let you go. He'd be a bad judge. In fact, he would probably get in a lot of trouble. He'd probably be found unfit for his position. He'd probably be fired. And then he'd probably disappear into obscurity uh, for, for, for being a bad judge. Probably never be a judge again. So the question is, uh, how is God, if he's the good judge, how is he able to declare the unrighteous righteous? And... The answer is given, uh, if you find Romans 3.23, this to me is the big idea of the first half of Romans. In fact, this paragraph uh, is, is one of the most important paragraphs in the Bible. And, you know, God convicted my heart whenever I was reading this. You know, I've, I've had Romans 3.23 memorized for a long time, uh, you know, for all sin and falling short of the glory of God. But... But God really convicted my heart and, and, and put in my heart, man, if we could memorize this and just be able to recite it, that's all you would need to share your faith with people. Let me read it to you. It's really good. It says, For all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet now God in His gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He has done this through Christ Jesus who has freed us by taking away our sins. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment of our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. God was being entirely fair and just when he did not punish those who sinned in former times. And he is entirely fair and just in the present time when he declares sinners to be right in his sight because they believe in Jesus. That's the gospel. I want to tell you, I'm going to memor- after, after today, I'm going to memorize this, this paragraph, and that's how I'm going to share my faith unless the Holy Spirit tells me otherwise. Because that is, that is the awesome gospel. And let me tell you something real quick, just a, just a side note, you know, something that we need to be careful of uh, today. Uh, you know, a lot of people... A lot of people today, you know, we, we kind of live in a me-focused generation. And a lot of people share their faith uh, in such a way that the focus is, is that you get to go to heaven. Heaven is the prize in, in evangelism. But I want to tell you this morning that heaven is not the prize in evangelism. Being made right with God is the prize in evangelism. We don't, we, heaven is where we're going to live forever in the glory of God, but being reconciled to God, to Jehovah God, not being separated from Him by our sin and getting to live uh, for eternity with Him as we were created to do is the prize of being born again. Amen? So, um, 
Where was I? That was not my notes. Uh, let's see. That's the gospel. And God is able to declare unrighteous sinners righteous because Jesus was a replacement for us. You know, uh, I think the New King James calls him a, the propitiate sacrifice. That means the replacement. He came and he stood in our place. And, uh, you know, he, he took our punishment and he satisfied God's wrath and God's justice against man. He satisfied it. He completely paid the price for the sin of all time. He was the propitiate, the replacement. That is why God is just in declaring you and me innocent when we believe in Jesus. Because Christ took the punishment for us. Now, throughout 1-7, through as Paul establishes this principle... He kind of he realized that he could have possibly gave the wrong idea to some of his readers about two things, and we've already talked about them: uh, grace, through which we receive salvation by faith alone, and the law, by which he said a lot of kind of negative. It, it seems like it seems like he was casting the law in a very negative light, and so I want to just run through about six passages. We're not even going to turn there. I'm just going to. Call them out if you want to jot them down. You can. If not, uh, I'm just going to run through these and, and just pay special attention to what Paul is saying about law and grace. And it'll give you an idea of why he later feels like he kind of needs to defend his position on that and clarify a little bit. Uh, Romans 3.20, he says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In verse 21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law. In uh, 3.28, he says, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And in 4.13-14, he says, The promise of it to Abraham was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs... Faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Romans 5.20 The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Interesting. Uh, Romans 6.14 For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. It gets a little worse here. (laughs) Romans 7.4 Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And so Paul's kind of saying there that, that the law keeps us from being united with Christ. It keeps us from marrying Christ. And we had to die to it. We had to be separated from it in order to be married to the, to the Lord, married to Christ, become the bride of Christ by being born again. There's more. Uh, 7.5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So he's saying there that the law partners up with sin to to arouse and stir up death in our life. And finally, last one. I know this might be boring for some, but I'm trying to build a case here. Uh, Romans 7, 6. We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. 
So here he's saying the law hinders the life in the Spirit. The law, uh, he says, you must be released from the law so that you can serve in the newness of the Spirit. So you can kind of see that's just kind of a, a high level of how Paul, you know, in building this case for Jesus as the sacrifice for us and salvation by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, uh, he, he was a little bit afraid that maybe he gave people the wrong idea about grace and about law. And so, in, uh, in Romans 6, 1 through 7, 6, he gives his defense of grace. And you can turn there, because we're going there. 6, 1. And then, in Romans 7, 7 through 25, he gives his defense of the law. Our clarification may be a, a, better, a better way to say it. I guess I should turn there too. Romans 6, verse 1. Paul's defense of grace. He says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more kindness and forgiveness? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we became Christians and were baptized to become one with Christ Jesus, we died with Him? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with Him in His death, we will also be raised as He was. Our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. I read that again because this is important. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also share His new life. We are sure of this because Christ rose from the dead and He will never die again. Death no longer has any power over Him. He died once to defeat sin and now He lives for, for the glory of God. So you should consider yourselves dead to sin and able to live for the glory of God through Christ Jesus. So, that is his defense of grace. And the defense of grace is this, layman's terms. Justification by faith alone in Christ never leads to a life of more sin but it is the only place from which we can launch an offensive against the sin in our lives that remains after we're born again. Every bomber that goes to drop bombs on the sin that remains in our life takes off from the runway of salvation by faith through grace. Every missile that we launch on the temptations of our life Start in the, in the home base of salvation by faith through grace. Believing in Jesus Christ. The lifelong um, journey of sanctification in which the Holy Spirit is our lifeline leading us every day to crucify our flesh starts uh, in, that, in that unassailable base that is sanctification and salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ. 
And so just to put it uh, in, in one statement here, I think we might, yeah, we have it up here. Uh, and uh, Paul's defense of grace in chapter 6 is this. Justification by grace through faith alone never leads to a life of increased sinning, but becomes the secure, unassailable, triumphant base for the lifelong warfare against sin in our lives. Whew, that's awesome. Look at verse 17. Chapter 6, verse 17. It says, Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you have obeyed with all your heart the new teaching God has given you. Now you are free from sin, your old master, and you, you have become slaves to your new master, righteousness. So you see, freedom in Christ. You know, you hear, you hear, you hear some people justify their, their liberal ways of life. Uh, liberal to what the Scripture says, uh, not politically, but biblically. You hear people justify their liberal uh, ways that they live their lives by saying, oh, well, I've got freedom in Christ. But freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin or to push the limits. Freedom in Christ is the freedom not to have to sin anymore. We are free from our old master. We were once in bondage we once had chains on our hearts and on our minds to the sin nature, and now we're free not to have to sin anymore. And that's an awesome thing. You know, Jesus set us free from our bondage and made us able to choose righteousness unto life rather than sin that leads unto death. And that's not to say that after we're born again that we won't sin, right? Can anybody attest to that? That after you're born again that you have sinned. I know I have. Uh... But God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we will confess and forsake them. Amen? That's 1 John 1.9. So, that's His defense of grace. It's not a license to sin. It's freedom from sin. And it's from that place of grace, it's because of the grace of God that we are able to destroy the sin in our lives and fight that battle of sin in our lives. Amen? All right, uh, so next we look at what Paul's defense of the law was. And the misconception that he was afraid that he was portraying was that not only was the law not necessary for becoming right with God, because like we said, that's by faith in Christ alone, but also uh, that, he would, that he would portray the law in such a negative light that people would equate it with sin. Because it talks over and over again about how uh, you know, I read the passages about how the law came and, and, and together with sin and, and it aroused in my life. So he wanted to go back here and, and just kind of clear, clear these things up a little bit about the law. Uh, Romans 7, verse 7. He says, Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is evil? Of course not. The law is not sinful, but it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin took advantage of this law and aroused all kinds of forbidden desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. I felt fine when I did not understand what the law demanded, but when I learned the truth, I realized I had broken the law and was a sinner, doomed to die. So the good law, which was supposed to show me the way of life, instead gave me the death penalty. 
Soon, sin took, it, sin took advantage of the law and fooled me. It took the good law and used it to make me guilty of death. But, and here's the key idea to his defense, he says, but still, the law itself is holy and good and right. You know, before, before the New Testament was compiled and written, all this stuff that we read about in the New Testament was going on. And, uh, you know, they, the church, the founding church fathers, they, they depended on the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, uh, as their scripture. That was their scripture. And uh, Paul, whenever he was uh, about to be executed and he was writing his last letter to his disciple Timothy, he wrote this about the Old Testament. He said, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And that's first, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. And I just like to say that that also now extends to all Scripture. You know, the, the Holy Spirit was speaking all Scripture, but at the time, uh, you know, their, their main reference was the Old Testament. Uh, then in Galatians uh, 3.24, he wrote this about the law. He says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. So his, his big point here is, is that the law is not sin. So the question is, what is the purpose of the law in the life of the New Testament believer? We know, we know from that passage in Galatians that, that um, it's the, for, the, for the unbeliever, it's the schoolmaster. It's the, it's, the, it's the means by which the Holy Spirit convicts the heart and brings them to Christ. But what is it, how does it play in the life of the New Testament believer? The way it does is, you know, he says it several times in the passage, it makes us know our sin. The law makes us know our sin. Look look at verse 7 and 8 again with that thought in mind. He says, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is evil? Of course not. The law is not sinful, but it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said do not covet. Okay, so that's, that's, that's interesting. It shows us our sin. It exposes, the law exposes sin as sin. Uh, now, when the law exposes sin, sin may flare up. You know, it's, it's the old adage where you confront someone about something and they, they do it even more, you know. Uh, so when, when the law convicts us of our sin, sometimes that may flare up sin. And a lot of times people... Uh, mistakenly point to the law as sin. But even though the, the, the law may push the hot button, Paul makes it very clear that, that sin is to blame. Sin is the culprit, not the law. The law is right and good. Now, being exposed as a sinner is a painful blessing. You know? It's not something that we like to think about ourselves. I'm a I'm a sinner. Say it on the inside or even out loud if you want to. It's, it's, not, it's not something that we like to do. But, you know, uh, biopsies, invasive surgeries, 
Those are painful things. Surgical repairs of damaged tendons and ligaments, physical therapy, those are painful things. But they're good for us in the hands of a skilled physician. And I want to tell you this morning that God is the most skilled physician. And He wants to use this this important uh, aspect of the Word of of knowing our sin to to, to help help us be the people that He wants us to be. So, uh, notice here something something important too. Notice here that that, that Paul says uh, that the law causes us to know our sin. That is our sinful condition. Because if you look in verse 8, he he says something. He says, uh, sin took advantage of the law and aroused all kinds of evil desires. Uh, Some some translations say coveting within him. And so we have to to kind of stop and take a step back and say, but wait a minute. I thought that coveting was sin. And, uh, And so... In Paul's mind here, and what he's trying to convey to us is, is that there's something behind the sin that's creating the sin. And what that is, is is what uh, you might call human depravity, you might call it the sin nature, you might call it the flesh, but it's what he's addressing here, what the law helps us to know is not, is not my outburst of anger, but it's my sin nature behind that outburst of anger that, that, that creates the sin in my life, that human depravity in my life. And so that's, that's what he is talking about in this passage. Uh, the sinful condition is important to know and is what we get to know through the exposure of God's law. Now the question, why is it important to know our sin? Why is that so important? Why did he spend so much time to stop from the big idea and come and focus on this? And the reason is this, is that knowing our sin dethrones our own desires as God in our life and exposes them as sin. So what Paul means when he said that apart from the law, sin has no power, is that apart from the law, we do not perceive sin as sin. We don't see our own desires as illegitimate unless a law comes in and calls us into question. The law tells us that our desires are not the measure of right and wrong. The law tells us that there is a standard outside of what I want, namely God and His revealed will. Until the law comes, our desires are our own law. You know, want equals right, desire equals deserve. That's the world we live in, right? That's just the way I am. Deal with it. (laughs) Anybody ever heard that before? You know, uh, well, that's not that bad compared to some people. I I really, I really, this is what I really want, so I'm going to do it. You know, it's, it's, it's it's a me law that rules, that rules the ungoverned by God and by the Spirit, me, what I want rules. You know, a great example uh, is children. <laughs> you know, uh, children, whenever they come into the world, uh, they want what they want, and if they don't get what they want, then they scream. And, uh, you know, I have a two-year-old right now, and it's just the smallest thing set him off. You know, and, and we're, we're working with him and, and starting to implement some discipline, but 
but and you know I have a one year old. He's tired. He's very tired, and it's late and it's dark, and I'm tired, <laughs> and and I'm rocking him. And, and I know that all he needs to do is go to sleep, but he fights me, and he kicks me, and he bites me, and he pinches me, and he starts swatting me in the face. And, you know, I think so many times, now that I have, I have kids, I'm like, God, this is me. <laughs> this is me with you. You know, you, 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 you hold me tight in your arms, and you know all that I need to do is X, but I just want to do Y, and I fight. And I fight, and I fight because the human desire, the innate programming inside of us when we're born in this world is that I want to do what I want to do. And you know what that equates to? I am God. That's what we're programmed for. So the law exposes our desire to make ourselves God or to make a God who never vetoes what I say is going to happen. That's just as much of an idol as making myself God, as making a God that says, oh, that's okay. That scripture doesn't really apply today. You know, that's, that's, that's Old Testament. That's, that doesn't apply to me. We make a God that says that everything that we want to do is okay. We might as well declare ourselves God. You know? We need to know this about ourselves so that we can fully understand that our only hope is the Holy Spirit of God and that He would continually humble us so that we can see the folly of trying to be our own God and treating our own desires as law. This is what we've been delivered from. This is why we need a skilled physician. This is why Jesus died in our place and rose again, and why God sends the Holy Spirit to be our helper. It's why God, it's why God needed a propitiate sacrifice to save us from our sin, to make us right with God. It's why every day we need to humble ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after, after Jesus. Our sin is a great enemy of our sanctification. It's a great enemy because it's on the inside of us. There's nothing, there's nothing harder to kill than self. But greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. Amen? Now perhaps one of the greatest evidences that sin is in this room right now is that there may be some people in this room right now thinking, well, the Bible says that I need to know my sin. That must mean that I need to experiment with sin in order to know my sin. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the human nature. We're always trying to find a way. You know, that's the way the devil works. He takes the Scripture and he twists it. But this morning I want to tell you that there is a better way for us to know the power of sin. There's a better way. I want to give you a parable. I didn't make this up. Uh, I heard it from a preacher. But uh, I'm going to give you a parable that I think very well uh, demonstrates how to know the full power of sin. 
Now, there's a lot of sins that, that may manifest themselves in our lives. You know, your sin that speaks to your heart might be different than the sin that speaks to my heart, you know? Uh, I've got a list here. You know, there's anger, selfishness, pride, unbridled tongues and gossiping, desiring what is not yours, that's coveting, lying, lust, and the list goes on. Now, you, you insert the sin that speaks to your heart, you know, uh, and, and apply it to this parable. Three men standing around a pit. The pit looks desirable, symbolic of their sin, symbolic of temptation. Looks good. But at the bottom in the darkness, it's a deep pit. At the bottom in the darkness, sharp rocks, deadly snakes. Anybody ever seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Snakes everywhere. Uh, Around each man's waist is a cord. It's a 100-pound test cord. It's designed to break when 100 pounds of pressure is applied to it. So the first man's standing there, and he begins to be tempted in his life. Well, he used lust. That's a, that's a big temptation in a man's life. He begins to be tempted with lust in his life. So they begin to add weight, 5 pounds, 10 pounds, 15 pounds. He resists. He fights back, leans back. 20 pounds, 25 pounds. He digs in his heels with all of his might. 30 pounds, 35 pounds. The rope starts to squeeze on him. You know, it's got a, it's got a cinch. It begins to squeeze on him. It begins to hurt. Stops resisting. He jumps into the pit. There's exhilaration in the fall. But at the bottom of the pit, his ankles snap. Snakes attack. Deadly. Second man begins to be pulled into the pit. Five pounds, ten pounds, fifteen pounds. He resists. He fights back. Twenty, twenty-five pounds. Digs in his heels like the other man. Thirty, thirty-five pounds. And the rope starts to squeeze. But he, 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 he summons himself. He says, no. Fights back. Forty. 45, 50, 55 pounds, and it starts to be hard to breathe, and it starts to hurt significantly. 60 pounds, jumps into the pit, gives up, snap, snakes, dead. Third man begins to be pulled into the pit. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 pounds, resists, leans back. 30, 35, 40, and the rope starts to squeeze, and he says, no. Builds his resolve. 50 pounds, 60. It's harder to breathe. The, the rope starts to, starts to cinch into his side, and it hurts. 70 pounds. His feet start to slip towards the pit. Cries out for help. He reaches, and he finds a branch. He grabs it. He looks, it's shaped like a cross. In his, in his panic, he looks beyond the pit and he sees his wife 
going about her business, trusting Him. Then beyond them, He looks and He sees His children playing and in their hearts admiring Him. And then beyond them, He looks and He sees Jesus with a big gash in His side and holes in His wrists. His hands are raised and there's a big smile on His face and eye contact. And filled with resolve and passion, the third man holds fast. 75, 80, 85 pounds and the rope starts to cut into his side. It begins to bleed and the pain stabs, stabs into his side. 90, 95 pounds and the tears begin to flow down his cheeks. 100, snap goes the rope. And the man walks away, scarred, bloody, and weary, but victorious. Now let me ask you a question. Which of these men knows the full power of sin? It's not the wimps who jumped in at 35 and 60 pounds. And notice that I didn't say fall. You know, so many people say, I fell into sin. I fell into sin. We jump into sin. Because we want to indulge our own selfish desire. It's not the ones who jumped in. It's the man who resisted. Now I'm going to try something. If I was a preacher type, the preacher on the recording I heard this did this. If I was a preacher type, I would stand here on the edge of the platform. I'd look around, raise my voice, and I'd say, Are there any soldiers here? Does anybody have blood on their shirt? And scars in their side? Or do you just jump into the pit before the full power of sin is spent? Let that challenge you. But I'm not a preacher type. That was really hard for me. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Uh, I meant to yell louder. I'm just a Bible teacher trying to answer the objection that we have to experiment with our sin in order to know the power of sin. You guys stand with me. Let's, uh, let's just have a moment. You know, we, I think when we close our eyes, it helps us just to eliminate all distractions and to, to really focus on the Lord. Let's ask everybody in here. To, to close your eyes. I know some of you have children and stuff. We'll, we'll make the best we can. Let's just spend these last five minutes with the Lord. And, uh, you know, you may be here today and the law is convicting you of your sin. You may have never trusted and believed on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to make you right with God and save you from your sin. Let me tell you that God sent Jesus to take the punishment for your sins. If you believe and trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for your sins, then you will be made right with God and inherit eternal life. 
So right now, I just want to ask if, if there's anybody in this, in this place who you're not sure if, if you're right with God, you're not sure if you've ever been born again and you want to be born again, I just, we, with, it, with everybody's eyes closed, will you just lift your hand and let me know that we need to stop and pray? Anybody in the room? Anybody? Well, let me say, you know, um, if you're afraid to raise your hand, you know, we don't need to pray here. All you have to do is pray a prayer and say, and tell God, you know, God, I, I know that I am guilty. But I believe that Jesus died in my place. And I trust in that to make me right with you. And the Bible says that, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Now let's keep, let's keep, let's keep focused on the Lord. I got one more, one more challenge for you. Uh, with every eye closed. Now, there may be believers here this morning who are struggling with sin. God desires to painfully but lovingly reveal your sin by this law and free you from it by the grace that He offers through Jesus. It's time to stop jumping into the pit and start resisting the power of sin. And so, if if there's anybody in here right now, if you're if you're just dealing with sin, if you feel like you've just been jumping into the pit, if you just lift your hand up to God, I want to know that I need to stop and, and pray for you. Anybody in here? I see you back there. You can put your hand down. Well, let's just lift our hearts to God. And I'm going to pray for those first, and then I'm going to pray for us all that, that God would just Uh, dethrone the God of self in our life, that He would reveal to us our sinfulness, that that we could dethrone sin as sin. Amen. Lord God, I pray for those, Lord, who are dealing with sin in their lives right now, God. I pray for those who have fallen into the pit over and over and over again, God. Lord, I thank You, God, that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, not by not by their own power, not by their own will, Lord, but by submitting to the power of Your Holy Spirit that they are going to be able to resist the power of sin. God, that they will begin to have the, 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 the scars in their side, the blood on their shirts, Lord God, that, 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 is, that is required for every believer who will take up the cross and follow after You, God. Lord, I thank You, God, for a great resolve. In each and every person here's life, God. Not to, not to uh, resist sin by our own will, Lord God, but to daily submit to and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to crucify the flesh, to live the life of knowing the power of sin by living a life of righteousness, oh God. Now I'm going to pray for everybody. If you want to, you can raise your hands. Lord God... We pray, Lord, that, that God, that Your grace, Lord, would establish so great in us, Lord, that the love of Christ, that while we were still sinners, He came and He died for us, Lord. We pray that that grace and that love would create a, a, a resolve inside of us, Lord, and, a, and a, a holy, godly response to live a life of holiness, of righteousness, of sanctification towards You, O God. And Lord, we pray that Your good law, Lord, would come like a sharp sword in our lives.
and would reveal sin as sin. And God, that, that daily, that the, that the God of self inside of us would be dethroned, Lord God. That, that we would decrease so that you could increase, Lord. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.